So we are in Deuteronomy chapter 13. And I want to run through the basic structure with you again. I know it's been two weeks since we looked at it. We were just approaching this chapter and, and getting invested in it. <clears throat> so I don't want any of it to be lost on us. Deuteronomy 13. And if you notice on your, your uh, handout paper that you have, there are three situations that we are dealing with. I want to give you the verse references for those situations, making sure I stay on time here. I want to give you the verse references for those three situations. So in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, verses 1 through 5 are situation number 1. Verses 1 through 5 are situation number 1. Verses 6 through 11 are situation number 2. Verses 6 through 11, situation number 2. Verses 12 through 16 is situation number 3. Now if you'll remember, and I know this is by way of reminder, at the end of chapter 12, there's something very unique that takes place. And that is that chapter 12, verse 32, is actually in the Hebrew rendering of this, chapter 13, verse 1. Okay, I believe that anything that I've ever seen where it talks about, well, the Hebrews actually divided up this Old Testament book or this chapter in this way. They've always got a better way of doing it than whatever we did. So I don't know why we don't just stick with that. But notice it says in chapter 12, verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Everybody see that? Now, why is that important? Because now we're getting ready to put feet on the whole idea of what it is to uphold the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord God has given you. And this kind of goes hand in hand with what we're talking about with church discipline because it forces a community of people to have to make a hard decision. To have to make a decision that shouldn't be easy, uh, that, that should actually uh, hold us to test us of whether or not we believe God's word is telling us the truth. Chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you. Now stop there. Remember, the idea isn't, oh, well, he's got to be telling the truth because he's got miracles. He said this was going to happen, and it happened. Guys, even Satan can do that. Okay? Mm -hmm. So the idea of the miracle, the idea of the working of some act, should not be what impresses us. Not at all. The question is, what's coming out of their mouth? Because that reveals their heart. Look what it says. Saying, <clears throat> let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. Now remember, gods, little g gods are also what? Demons. Demons. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Anything that is trying to lead you away from Yahweh Elohim is for the purpose of leading you to some sort of demonic activity to get you slightly off the road. Remember, you don't have to be off but a smidge in order for that to perpetuate and you find out that you're actually a football field apart from where you should be. Okay? So every little bit of what someone would say, take it all into consideration. So notice, I think this is going to happen. And then they perform a miracle and it happens. Now, because it's happened, let's go serve somebody else besides Yahweh. There's the linchpin. The fireworks that you did were cool and all. We really appreciated enjoying that. It was great eye candy for the moment. But what you're telling us is seeking to lead us astray. You're blaspheming. And so, let's go and serve them. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words. Please mark the words. That's the important point here. Of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Why? For Yahweh, your Elohim, is testing you to find out if you love Yahweh, your Elohim, 
with all your heart and with all your soul. <coughs> so what is this type of situation? To what? Test. To test. It's a test. You say, well, why would God want to test us? Because he doesn't know what's in your heart? Because he wants to show us what's in our heart. Mine said, God proveth you. That God proveth you. Exactly. It's a similar instance whenever uh, Adam and Eve had sinned, and then they sewed together the fig leaves and they hid. And God said, Adam, where are you? Now, we, we know that God wasn't overturning rocks and looking behind every bush to say, where are you? He knew where he was, but what's he doing? He's calling Adam to account. Where are you right now? Think about it. But notice, it's the same situation with Israel. Are you unified in the truth? It's not any different. Notice it says here, verse 4, You shall follow Yahweh your Elohim and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments. Now watch this. Listen to His voice. Mark that for just a second. Serve Him and cling to Him. In other words, you are in service to him. You are his servant. You are to cultivate that relationship and administer his points of view, not your own. Notice the last one. Cling to him. It's the exact same word that is prescribed about the husband and wife relationship. But a man will leave his father and mother and he will cling to, he will cleave to his own wife and the two will become one flesh. It's the exact same word. You are to cleave unto the Lord alone. Now, the reason why I wanted you to mark, listen to his voice. Again, notice the emphasis is on words. Everybody sees that? But now I want to show, I want to, I want to remind you of something. If you wouldn't mind, put your notes here. If you want to put your finger here, whatever. And turn back to Exodus 20, that cataclysmic chapter. Exodus 20 is a turning point because it is the display of the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. I think I just saw my son's cowlick go by in the, in the window. <coughs> Makes me wonder why he's not in class. Look, yeah, I know. Look at verse 18. This is after the giving of the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, Yahweh spoke audibly from the mountain. It wasn't Moses. They heard God's voice and what he said. It says here, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Why? For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. How do you not sin? Fear of God. That's part of it. That's that's an attitude. But there's a, there's a basic crux. Obedience to what? Obedience to his word. Let's remember this concept. Truth is not an idea. It's not. Truth is not rules and regulations that are written down on stones. If the Ten Commandments are anything, they are reflective of who God is himself, the very character of God. Truth is a person. We have to remember that. Truth is a person, and he's probably most clearly seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Truth is always a person, not a concept, not an idea. Truth is not an arguable commodity. It's just not. Jesus displays truth perfectly. God has spoken, and that's what the truth of a matter is. So if he says it's right and something else is wrong, take it up with God. God said it. My job isn't to declare whether or not what God said is true or not. My job is to abide by what God has said. It really is. It becomes a lot easier if we could just get in our minds about what that obedience is. So notice this testing is an idea in relation to his word. It's a constant theme throughout scripture. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 13. His testing is according to his word. When he revealed his word powerfully in that manner, he made sure that Moses included this whole idea of why he spoke to them in that way. Let's look at verse 5. So what is situation number one? Situation number one is a miracle worker who's a false teacher. That's what situation number one is. It's a miracle worker who is a false teacher. A miracle worker who is a false teacher. Situation number two. Or sorry, verse five ends with it. Uh, but the prof, that prophet or that dreamer of dreams... Now, you might want to heavily underline this because it's very politically incorrect, okay? Shall be put to death. Let's not make any bones about it. False teacher deserves a death penalty. Because he has counseled rebellion against Yahweh your Elohim, who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now, look at the word used. To seduce you. That word seduce means to drive away and to scatter you. <clears throat> In other words, false teaching never creates unity. It creates a false unity, everybody coming over on one side because they think that's the right side, but that's when people end up doing what is right in their own eyes. It doesn't really have anything to do about what the truth is. We choose sides on political parties and things like that. People choose sides because they want to see a revolution happen. You find it's these people versus these people all the time throughout history. The question is, what's the truth in the matter? Usually nobody cares. Sides are chosen because of preference. That's a dangerous thing. A false teacher is trying to seduce, is trying to scatter people out from under the lordship of Yahweh the Creator. It says here, who brought you from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which Yahweh your Elohim commanded you to walk. And notice what it says here. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Does everybody see that? You shall purge the evil from among you. Now, let me give you some references real quick about that phrase because this isn't the only time that it's used in Deuteronomy. It's the first time it's used in Deuteronomy, but it's not the only time. Let me give you some references real quick. Chapter 17, verse 7. And this is just for your own personal Bible study. You can go and as we get through uh, Deuteronomy, we'll see the different situations that, that bring this type of strong prohibition from Yahweh. 17:7, 7, chapter 17, verse 12. <coughs> 1712, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 19, 
chapter 22, verses 21, 22, 24, 25, and also chapter 24, verse 7. Chapter 24, verse 7. This is a situation we're going to deal with next week when we look at it on Sunday for our worship time. But it's interesting because, uh, just to give you a, a quick aside if you want to write it down. Yes, ma'am? No, it's Sunday school. No Sunday school next week. No, I'm talking about Sunday worship. You're correct, oh. Tanya. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah, no Sunday school next week, but as far as Sunday worship, we're oh. going to be talking about this incident. It's going to be okay, one of many that we bring okay. up. First okay. Corinthians 5, this deals with the, the guy in the church who was having sexual relations with his stepmother, and the leadership of the church was applauding it. And Paul rebukes the Corinthians for that. And he actually says at the end of this incident, and he quotes that verse, he says, But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And it's interesting because what you find is in issues of sexual immorality, their ejection from the fellowship, if they're persisting in it, is automatic. It's not necessarily where you go through the process. You are to get rid of the leaven that is, that is existing among you. That's how seriously sexual sin is to be taken. So it was a situation that had prolonged so long, that had been so prolonged that Paul said, "Enough, we're done." And he makes a judgment call. So uh, it's interesting that he quotes from Deuteronomy, saying that principle, that idea of getting evil out from your midst, purging it. It's the same type of concept. It's the same type of concept for the church. So, um, real quick, let me give you one more thing here. Um, everybody see the word rebellion because he has counseled rebellion in verse 5. Everybody see that? Mm -hmm. That idea, that word rebellion is most often used in the Old Testament of speaking in uh, a child's rebellion against their parents is how that word is most commonly used. It's kind of being used differently here. But the concept of how it's predominantly used in the Old Testament is a disobedient child in relation to their, their mother and their father. So that's the idea, God being their father and having a wayward and rebellious child that's persisting in evil. Remember, guys, there are no competing truths. Uh, this is the whole idea of postmodernism. Well, it might be right for you, or relativism. It might be right for you, but it's not right for me. Whatever's right for me is do this. You know, I can smoke weed as long as I don't harm anybody. It's totally okay. It's not okay. You know, it's not at all. Well, the laws of the land say I can. Yeah, but just because it's lawful doesn't mean that it's profitable. You know, there's a lot more that Scripture has to say about judging a situation than that. So uh, I think it's important for us to recognize there are no competing truth. There's one truth. There's one truth. Verse 6 gets us into the second situation. Now it gets a little bit dicier. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish... Now notice, it got a lot more serious from a, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, didn't it? It's now moved in to, to your, your immediate circles. And notice the wife that you cherish. If you've got uh, a marginal note, the wife of your bosom is the idea. The one that you hold close. The one that you deeply care for. Or your friend who is as your own soul. Someone that sticks with you through thick and thin. Entice you and notice the word. What's it say? Secretly. They, see they entice you secretly. Now, here's a question. If it's not wrong, why not be open? Isn't it interesting that disobedience always gives itself away? How do you know? 
Secrets. <laughs> Secrets always expose the wrongdoing. Now, don't tell anybody, but unless it's a situation where someone is going to have defamation of character and reputation, don't get me wrong, there are some things as leadership in the church, you just don't go spreading around about out of the people. But if it's somewhere like, hey, let's get together and go sin, you know? Well, why not stand up in front of the whole church and make that offer? Why would you only want to get some people? You see what I'm saying? It's interesting. They come to you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the people who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end. In other words, it doesn't matter where they are in all of creation. If they're a God other than Yahweh, the creator of all things, they're a false God. Now notice I'm not discounting that there are other gods, little g gods, yes, but they are all creatures and they are not the creator. Only Yahweh Elohim is the creator of all things. That distinction has to be a mainstay. So here's what it says, verse 8, You shall not yield to him, or listen to him. <clears throat> Don't pause and consider it. Immediately take your hands and cup them over your ears. We have no room for it. We have no place for it. Notice it's almost like cut it off before they even get the sentence out. Right? Have nothing to do with it. It says here, And your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Now stop. Why, why is this so serious? You're talking about a family member. Talking about a family member. <clears throat> Think about it, guys. Cheryl, what if you were sitting there, mind your own business, doing your own thing, and Laverne comes to you, Cheryl. <laughs> Let's go off and worship other gods and serve them. Exactly. You're, if you were living in Old Testament Israel, and remember, this is about Israel. This is about the government for how they run a nation and, and how they apply their own justice system in order to keep the nation pure and holy from outside evil influences. That's the idea here. Yahweh desires a spotless bride in the church, but he also desires a spotless people to represent him on earth. The one to administer this capital punishment, is that the head of the family? What's it say? You. 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 But what if he's the one that's sitting? Yeah. If he's the one that's sitting, then you come against him. You're in trouble, Laverne. <laughs> in fact, do this. Put your finger here. Turn over to chapter 17. We're going to get more into this in 17. 17 is a crazy, interesting chapter. But look at verses 6 and 7. This kind of goes with the, uh, the, the two or three witnesses that we looked at from Deuteronomy 19. This is the other, the other part of it. Chapter 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness because it becomes hearsay. Okay? Now watch this. Verse 7. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. There's that quotation again. So notice, if this has happened, and you're bringing this charge against this person, you pick up the rock and you sling it first. And remember, when they killed people back then, they stoned them to death. And they picked up a rock and they beat them like it was a hammer until they died. 
And not only was it them, it was everybody that was in the community of Israel. Everybody participated in capital punishment. Started to make you think about how serious charges were, wasn't it? Now what would be the, turning back to 13, and think about the severity of this. Killing someone for trying to lead you after false gods. Number one, why? Why is it so serious? It's a front to God? What? Nips it in the bud. It nips it in the bud, that's for sure. On the first commandment. Ah, look on the back of your sheet. This is from Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Small g gods, demons, celestial beings who are trying to usurp an authority because they've been put in charge over nations. Israel, you are not to act like this. Notice that God didn't give the law to every nation under heaven. Does everybody see that? Why is that? Because Israel is his nation, and it's his law that he gave to them as his special prized possession. Why is that? Chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. They were to so hold on to his ordinances and live by his statutes that they served as a beacon of light to the pagan nations, which drew people to Israel to know the intimacy of the Creator. That's the idea. And that's another thing that makes the church different. Not only are we not a national organization, we're a transnational entity, but we also have the commission to go out and share the light with people. Not to live in such a way as to where people come in. That can happen if we're exercising selfless Christ-like love with one another. People can take note of that and be attracted to it. But our job is to take the words of the gospel and to go out. So, in this situation, it's a violation of the very first commandment. And remember this, guys. Commandments 1 and 2. Number 2 is not number 1. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of those things. Why is that? It's a manifestation of number 1 not being held by. That's what it is. It's creating an idol. An idol that looks like what? A god. A demon. Some sort of concoction or structure. That's the problem. So, it's severe because of one reason and one reason only. It breaks God's commandment. God's word is what? Truth. Truth. Period. It's establishing right and wrong. And when somebody violates this, they're clearly wrong. God prescribes the consequence for it. Now, you shall surely kill them. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. In other words, the accuser must stand behind his accusation or her accusation in this. Now, would Jewish culture be a little bit different with women having differing rights? Yes. But that doesn't negate the fact of needing two or three witnesses in order to prove a charge. That's what's interesting. Notice it was also to be made public so that the whole city could be involved in the process of capital punishment. Isn't this what they did to Stephen? they, They killed him for telling the truth. And while Saul didn't pick up a rock and knock him in the head to get, you know, a good one in for truth's sake as he saw it, he still held the coats and were even told that he looked with approval upon the situation. His presence was still a standing of where he was in the situation. I I can't help but to think about how Paul, later throughout his life, would be haunted by Stephen's demeanor. Because it's not like the guy was screaming and crying. He wasn't trying to get his way out of it. Instead, he was telling them, I can see God standing, or I can see Jesus standing at God's right hand, and it freaked them out. And they just beat him even harder, probably. Yes, sir? So these Jewish leaders... Doing what they were commanded, by they were stoning, upholding the law by stoning Stephen. 
but yet they were wrong. In that situation. Yes. Had enough witnesses. They rushed upon him. They stopped their ears and they rushed upon him. So there could have been other incidents of a decision made by an individual. Or is that where the three witnesses come in? They don't have to have three witnesses, correct? Well, in this situation, you would want three witnesses, yeah. In a a family situation or a Stephen's situation? Well, it's interesting. In a family situation, it seems that you're supposed to take it over your own initiative. But the interesting thing here is a choice of, will you cleave to the wife that you cherish, or will you cleave to the God who made you? And you have to make a decision. And why do you think that is? What did we learn from the first incident? It's a what? Test. It's a test. Do you really love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? It's a hard decision, man. Aren't you thankful you're not Old Testament Israel? You know, aren't you thankful that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every person that believes? But notice this was a serious situation. It says here, verse 10, So you shall stone him to death because he has sought to seduce you from Yahweh your Elohim who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And notice this, then all Israel will hear and will be afraid and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. Now here's the thing. Was Israel full of idolatry? Very much so. What does that tell you about them keeping God's commandment? They didn't do it. And because they didn't take decisive action, sin ran amok. In fact, here's another interesting thing we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. Is that anytime you have an elder in a church that is in persistent sin, you are to rebuke them publicly in front of everybody. That it's not to be a private rebuke. Because they've taken the mantle of leadership, the person who's an elder becomes an elder because they've desired to be an elder. And it says it's a good thing, but here are the qualities that that person needs to have in order to be considered for the role or the office of elder. And here's the thing. If they mess it up, if they're involved in a habitual or perpetual sin, they're to be rebuked by all in the hearing of all so that all would fear. It sets an example that just because your leadership doesn't mean that you skirt it. You don't just push it under the rug. In fact, in all of my disagreements with John MacArthur about his views on salvation, I will say this. Uh, He had a deacon in his church that was in sin. And this guy was refusing to repent. And so he stood up on one Sunday morning and said, we have a deacon that is in sin. And if he does not come forward and confess his sin and repent of it, I will expose his name next week. And he left it. And all the deacons came forward. All the deacons. Everybody was in sin. Everybody's bringing their moonshine equipment and dropping it off. But, I mean, yeah. Those situations are to be handled seriously. And here's the thing. We look at that and we go, good grief. That, That creates some anxiety and fear in me. I can't help but to think about what would the church as a whole look like if we actually just believe that God was telling us the truth about handling this situation and then enjoying the fruit that pours out of the situation because we handled it properly. This whole situation with sexual abuse and all that that's going on in the churches and people just covering it up, dismissing people, saying that they're crazy, they need to be put on medicine and all this stuff because you've got clergy members or youth pastors or whatever it is that are abusing these people. What is wrong with people, man? It's a mess. 
It is, it is a straight-up bona fide mess, man. Truth has got to be at the front. Well, it might hurt our church. Well, number one, it shows you the serious maturity issues of your church. But we have a responsibility to lead people in a proper way, in a proper fashion. And when sin takes place, owning up to it. Having a tender heart before God and saying, yeah, man, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. It, it's it's. Nuts. It gets crazy. I would think the death penalty would probably be a pretty decent deterrent to behaving in such a way, though, too. It should be. It should be. And here's the reason why. Guilt is a poor motivator, but I guarantee you this. Fear is a great motivator. And one of our problems that we've had in churches lately is we don't fear the Lord anymore. We don't fear that he's actually intimately going to be involved in doing something. And that's where it comes down to how our households are structured, how our kids are structured, how our church attendance is valued. And I don't know I'll give the hunters a, a hard time. Whatever, man. They can go catch deer all day long if they want to. <laughs> but seriously, there, there, comes, there comes down a, a point of things of, of, I just, I don't know. I want nothing more than for our church to be on fire for Jesus. That when we have worship in the morning, that, man, our hearts are just so singing to him that we're just... We're just so blessed, and, and we want to just tell him thank you for it. I just, it's great, you know. I I, I, I relished the opportunity to play guitar this morning. Uh, and for no other reason than I know I have a distortion pedal up there that I can kick on and make it rock out. A little bit. Why is that? Because God's glorified by that, just like he is anything else. Oh, man, I love it. I love it. A little bit of punk rock coming out. That's okay. <laughs> rock and roll is good for the soul. So anyway, <laughs> verse 12. So notice, situation number two, family. And it says, or your friend who you love is your own soul, family. We have some friends we would consider family. They're just so close to us. Family. Situation number two deals with family. The first one deals with false prophet trying to lead you astray. The second situation deals with Family, what time we got? We got six minutes. Let's go ahead and hit this. We can do it. Uh, verse 12, situation number three. If you hear in one of your cities, which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. In other words, you should have a case. Why is that? It's not the city that you live in. Notice that. Now we're talking about where they conquered. And if you remember, when they conquered Og of Bashan, they immediately acquired 140 miles of real estate that they initially did not have. So there's cities everywhere. In fact, in one instance, they conquered 60 cities. That wasn't a small deal. God gave a lot into their hands. And so you got people living anywhere. Hey, I hear over in this place, that they're actually mounting up a rebellion and starting to live as pagans. Well, what should we do about it? Well, that's just their city. Just let them do what they do. Well, that's just Madison, and that's just how they act. Right? And we have this flippant attitude about sin. Well, it's, it's localized as long as it's not centralized. That's, that's a problem we get into. Well, as long as that's their sin, and I don't have to deal with it, then fine, hands off of them. We're to be beacons of light and truth regardless of who we're dealing with. Okay, and I would say that this has a secondary application of principle of the idea of we need to be standing for the truth regardless. I'll tell you another reason why. is because when we're standing for the truth and we're upholding God's word, it makes it extremely difficult for us to be rendered into the realm of hypocrite 
when this is what we've been standing upon this whole time. This is what gets politicians in trouble, you know. So what were we going to say, Roxanne? Um, dumb question. They have conquered the people in these cities that he's talking about. So it's the Jews that are living there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, and remember, all of this, the reason is is because, remember, we're, we're analyzing these passages, but we've got to keep the synthetic process involved. The synthesis through the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses is meeting with the people because he's going to pass away and the people are going to cross over under the leadership of Joshua. Remember that? So he's preparing them. When you get into the <laughs> land, here's how you're to handle this situation. Remember when he told him about the theology of sacred spaces in chapter 12? Not to do it now, but you get over, you conquer the inhabitants, you wipe out everyone there so there's no trace of their demonic worship anywhere. And then when you establish your cities, Yahweh's going to pick a place. There are certain things that have to take place. When you get into the land, here's how you govern yourself. It is a self-governance across the nation. So yeah, that's the idea here. Now if they have somebody right now before they cross over going, hey, let's go worship other gods. I think in principle we can sit here and say, here's how they need to handle it. But yeah, so we're talking about this being... The Jews have the land, is the idea that we're talking about. Yes. And here's the reason why we know that's true, is because when they came into the land, what were they supposed to do? Kill everyone. Haram, is it? To utterly extinguish every evidence of false worship. Well, that's so cruel and that's so evil. What do we remember about Haram? Why was it justified? Because they'd, they'd reached their capacity for sin. Exactly. Because I believe it's either in Leviticus 16, 17. No, it's not 16. That's Day of Atonement. 19. Leviticus 19 runs them through all of these horrible sexual sins that they're to have nothing to do. And God makes an interesting comment. He says, all of these sins the people of the land have done and the land is vomiting them out. They have committed such atrocities that they're to be disciplined. Yes, sir. I have a question. Go for it. And some of those instances, they even converted the children and the women to the animals. Why yeah. is that? What's that? I'm sorry. They even murdered some of the women and the children and the animals. Yes. God told him to everything. He didn't want anything left behind. Because here's I always the, wondered that, just like, why the animals? Well, here's what's interesting about that as well, is um, when you look at Saul's instance, and Saul is told, I think it's the Amalekites, <laughs> yeah. that he's told yeah. to go in and destroy all of them. But Saul didn't actually keep, keep those property the the soldiers did yeah 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 but he was okay with it you find out later that he finally through repetitious working with uh with um samuel in that finally he says yeah yeah it's my fault these people swayed me and i was okay with it and he he, the, the the people kept rule i think what god tries to teach whenever he's like yeah man woman child beast doesn't matter destroy it all now they're able to keep the houses that were built there he says you'll live in houses that you were living but here's the thing the houses are one thing to provide shelter what would all the animals do the animals would make them richer could be used for food in some situations I've always I've always just, yeah where does our provision come from God. yeah yeah yahweh jireh that's who it is and so we we i think what he's trying to do is show them you know what you don't need all this stuff you can obey me and get rid of all this stuff and not worry about where your sustenance is going to come from because I took care of you with manna. I provided quail for you. I gave you water from the rock to drink. And I think I think the Old Testament, the constant message that God is always hammering on people. In fact, C.S. Lewis calls the Old Testament the hammering process for the Jews, is what he calls it. Because God is trying to hammer into their head, I love you and I will always take care of you. Over and over. That's the message through every book. I love you and I will always take care of you. So... We're out of time. A good question.
What's your name, real quick? Oh, Fernando. Hey, I just moved into town two months awesome, ago. Awesome, man. Yeah, it's sorry. very nice to meet you. Thanks for being with us. church, so I'm going to Here's one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you found it. Hey, man, we're glad to have you. Very thankful. Yeah. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Uh, again, no Sunday school next week. But we will pick up with situation number three. We'll dissect situation number three. And also dealing with verses 17 and 18 is very significant as well because it kind of caps the end of this. So yeah, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, it's difficult to read things like this and to think about what we would do in these situations. We thank you that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb that's taken upon the sins of the world and has died and atoned for our sins, Lord, and has set us free. We thank you for life eternal. We thank you, God, that the Old Testament teaches us and encourages us and demonstrates your character and that we do need to live in fear and reverence of you and in complete love of you. Thank you, God, uh, that you are truly a merciful, merciful, awesome Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.